0: Good morning everyone. Welcome back to the stiletto surgery podcast. Today I have the pleasure of discussing a topic that is extremely close to my heart. Two years ago today, my life was forever changed in the most amazing way and I had my son. The impact he has had on my personal and professional life cannot be simply described but only summarized as the hardest and best thing I have done in my life thus far. Starting a family is always wonderful but of course, beginning that journey in residency or in the early years of your professional life can be a real challenge. Last month, the Journal of Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery published a review of the impact of plastic surgery training on family planning and prenatal health. The article, which is located in the bio of this cast, evoked some serious emotional and thoughtful discussion amongst my colleagues and friends. I believe it to be an extremely difficult topic to discuss and until recently, even taboo to mention. As women in medicine are now becoming the majority, I certainly think prenatal health and family planning while in residency deserves as much light as possible. So I actually asked the authors of the paper to join me for discussion today. I want everybody to please welcome Dr. Deborah Bourne. She's a plastic and reconstructive surgeon and assistant professor of surgery at the University of Kentucky. She, She has researched gender bias, professionalism, and family planning, and personally survived residency and fellowship as a surgeon and mom of two, very young kids. Please also welcome back my friend, Dr. Wendy Chen, Chief Plastic Surgery Resident at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center and Future Hand Surgery Fellow at UCLA.
1: Hi, girls. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much for inviting us.
0: Welcome back. So glad to have you and excited to kind of hear this discussion today. I want to thank you both for your dedication to this extremely controversial and challenging subject. I really feel the more we discuss family planning and prenatal maternal health, the more likely we'll see change within the surgical field, and really for all working women. I think this is a really big challenge, especially in this time and time and day. You know, I think your research on this subject was really compelling to me. Um, I'd like to actually just review for the listeners your results in short. Um, and again, you can follow um, the paper as well in the link uh, within the bio, but. Uh, The short of it, really, the survey was completed by 370 trainees, which is a lot within our field. Um, The mean age of the respondents was about 31 years old, so really in the prime of their career. Um, We had uh, 58% that were married, 35% reported at least one pregnancy for themselves or for their partner. Both male and female uh, respondents intentionally postponed having children because of their career, which I believe is really significant. Women were significantly more likely to report negative stigma attached to pregnancy um, and plan to delay childbearing until after training. In fact, 56% of female trainees reported an obstetrical complication, which is really sad. Um, Which is very cool. Assisted reproductive technology was used by 19.6% of trainings and we'll get into more of that later. Mean maternity leave was still at a very dismal 5.5 weeks. Uh, so usually less than six weeks, with 44% uh, taking less than six weeks, which is a lot more than I thought. Um, Mean paternity leave, which is uh, kind of a newer subject, uh, was about 1.2 weeks, uh, still a lot less than I'm sure they want. Um, 62% of women and 51% of men reported dissatisfaction with their leave, um, and 61% of female trainees breastfed for six months, and less than 20% for 12 months. And as I'm sure most people are aware, lactation facilities were available near operating rooms less than 30% of the time, which is a huge uh, deal for us. So ladies, I just wanted to get your thoughts about what you felt at the conclusion of writing this paper, because this is really compelling evidence, especially comparing it to past papers that have been published within other specialties.
1: So part of the reason I was interested in writing this paper is, first of all, my own experience uh, now as a mother of two children, but talking to other female residents at meetings, I was so sad because a lot of them have these horrible stories about taking four weeks of maternity leave because otherwise they wouldn't be able to sit for the boards, or their program just really didn't support them to take more than that, and having a lot of animosity Against them from the other residents because they weren't taking call when they were on maternity leave even though they were taking only their vacation you know as their maternity leave and um, people who really struggled during pregnancy who had a lot of nausea vomiting potentially, really devastating complications like preterm labor and you know potentially being hospitalized and then going back to residency going back to taking call to working long hours to having a high stress physically and emotionally demanding job while pregnant and being concerned about what impact that would have on their fetus and so hearing these stories and sort of experiencing some of these things myself I wanted to see what the actual numbers were. And the numbers are pretty much what I expected. I mean, I was really surprised at the high number of complications with 56% of female residents reporting they had an obstetrical complication. That was a little bit horrifying to me. Um, The most common complication was hyperemesis gravidarum, which is not necessarily damaging to the fetus. It's just absolutely miserable for the mother to be nauseated and throwing up constantly while operating and taking care of patients. But, you know, this is a population that, you know, is generally taking care of themselves. They're not obese. They're not smoking. And they really should have lower levels of complications than the general population, but they don't. They have higher. Um, So I found that really sad and disturbing. And, you know, this research does make me sad, but at the end, sort of talking about what we can do to change things, to make things better, and to support women and men who have families during residency, that gives me hope.
2: I think another interesting um, outcome of this study is that I have used this as a organized way to talk about um, family planning now with young medical students in their first or second year um, who have no idea, you know, their eyes is just really on the ball and they're not thinking about this part of their life yet because they haven't had to, you know? But surgical training is such a long, long-term commitment Um, that this was something to kind of get them started thinking about it. And, you know, we just had our interviews, and I noticed that a lot of people had taken extra time to be in the laboratory before even coming to residency, which obviously increases the age range duration at which you're doing your surgical training. And so I think that makes this article even more relevant. Um, I, you know, I think... It's really great to want to pursue surgical training. Um, And I don't think that we have to give up this part of ourselves or make ourselves miserable in this part of our lives, this family planning part, uh, this aspect of us as humans, um, if that's what you want to do, um, you know, become a parent.
0: Yeah, I think those are great points. And and I know, um, Wendy, you had mentioned that you had had a lot of approaches from young pre-medical students or early uh, residents in their career kind of asking, well, when's the best time? And I know, you know, with all of this data that we now have, <clears throat> a lot of it, a little bit, you know, depressing. <laughs> you know, what do you say to them now? I mean, when is there a good time?
2: Yeah, so I think... Um... <clears throat> I have talked to a lot of mothers and Deb, uh, Dr. Bourne is gonna be great to chime in on this as well. But my understanding is that there's no best time. <laughs> I mean, like, I think um, some people are super lucky in that they can time a lab year baby or time a chief year baby. And I think that's uh, super lucky if you can make that happen. But my understanding is that there's not really a best time. Um, so for myself, I chose to Um, go through the egg uh, cryopreservation process um, because I don't have a partner and it's not really in the near future for me to start a family. But I knew that I wanted to keep that option uh, because it's important to me. Um, I wrote about it in the resident magazine this summer um, and I put it in terms of like, if you could put a price tag on Um, How much would you pay to have your own biological child when you're 40 or something? Mm -hmm. Um, What would that number be for you? Uh, And that kind of frames the discussion or frames the idea or at least plants a seed um, to start thinking about things and planning for things.
0: Now, were you ever approached by anybody, Wendy, who recommended against having children residency, recommended against doing any of that family planning Um, have you ever kind of felt that a negative towards that? Uh,
2: I definitely feel like it's not encouraged or you're not prompted to talk about it or think about it. And I definitely know of women, um, who have been frankly discouraged. Like, um, I think in this survey that we did, we got some like free text responses that were pretty horrifying and seemed kind of obsolete and outdated and antiquated where during an interview process somebody told them like we don't have babies here you know Um, which was really sad um, because these were all people who were currently in training Um, I did have one senior resident when I was a junior resident, she had gone through the egg crowd preservation process and she had just kind of been like, um, oh, come talk to me if you're interested. And I just had completely put it out of my mind that it was even an option like this. I can never have the money. I can never have the time. But that was a false assumption that I made myself. But that was really the only time somebody ever even tried to like mention the topic, I think, about family planning.
0: Right, I mean, I think to put things in perspective, I'm not exactly sure of the, the exact monetary number it costs, but I mean, we fly all over for 15 plus interviews. You know, we spend countless dollars on hotel rooms. Certainly we put a lot of money towards our education over the 30 year period to get here. And, you know, really, if you look at the cost compared to that to cryopreservation, which is something that I would say might be equal if not more important um, you know it's something that maybe we really shouldn't even hem and haw over and we should just go ahead and and go for it
2: yeah I will say that um, depending where you are in the country um, or if you're in a city or in a smaller city the costs will vary because I've talked to a lot of women about this since I started talking about it and writing about it Um, so um, and I wouldn't say that this is medically advised But one way that I found as a loophole for reducing my costs was um, the more I talked about it, the more I had friends who were like, oh, I'm going through this process, like as a um, with their partners, like trying to have a baby. And oftentimes you have leftover medications um, that are commonly used medications. So they would just give me like their leftovers. And that, um, again, this is not medically advised. My doctor would not um, recommend this as a general practice, but that's what I did to reduce my personal cost in this process. Um, I mean, it was probably at least definitely three digits, but maybe even four digit reduction in the cost of my process.
0: Well, that's great. I, you know, I think it's definitely something to, to really seriously consider, especially early in your career. I mean, I think it's, you know, it's probably an easier decision the later and later you get, but if you're you know, kind of trying to think about your planning of your future within the next five to 10 years, uh, maybe something you want to consider earlier and be knowledgeable of maybe at the, at the, at the onset of your residency, uh, the beginning of your residency journey. Uh, so certainly some more education, uh, I think like you even talked about at that, uh, uh, the beginning, the start of, of residency or fellowship is really warranted probably by the program or by your GME uh, staff, which would be very helpful.
2: I would say, yeah, because either A, you're saving money, or B, you're planning ahead so that your colleagues know, or if you're a junior resident, maybe you're not really taking departmental call yet. Um, and then also, um, the younger you are, the more likely you are to be fertile, which means the more likely you are to use lesser meds, um, fewer meds at a, fewer, at a lower dose, um, which means a lower cost overall. Uh, And I actually had friends, because I encouraged them to do this, they went, got evaluated, and they actually found, like, gynecologic issues, like endometriosis that warranted a surgical intervention, a giant ovarian cyst that warranted surgical intervention. Um, And this is all because they just started the process of assessing their fertility and then ended up finding gynecologic issues that that actually required them to get a legitimate surgery, which was... um, surprising, you know?
0: Right, and lucky, and lucky, yeah. So, um, you know, Dr. Bourne, you know, you decided to go ahead and and begin your family planning journey while in residency, which I commend you for, because I know exactly uh, how difficult that can be. Um, You know, did you, before you started, um, you know, the idea of going ahead and having children, did you ever feel compelled to wait for any reason? Like, did you ever feel any academic pressures from your residency um, outside or inside uh, that that you kind of or within yourself that you wanted to achieve something before you began family planning
1: absolutely there is certainly a huge stigma against being pregnant and having children as a female during residency because you're expected to see medicine and surgery as your calling and it's supposed to be your one focus throughout residency and you're not supposed to have distractions like that. And I think it's called into question your commitment to your career if you're doing things like having babies and having these other things going on in your life. And our paper demonstrates that with over 70% of females saying, yes, there is a negative stigma attached to being pregnant during residency. And I thought it was interesting that only 50% of the men seem to recognize the stigma but certainly, in my mind, it is absolutely there. Um, but that being said, I didn't feel that anyone actively discouraged me from making that decision with my husband. I think that they were happy for us that we, you know, were able to have children and that they were healthy. And as long as it didn't, you know, impact my ability to be an effective resident and to perform all the duties I needed to perform as a resident, they. Um, certainly weren't going to actively discourage me once I had made that decision.
0: And that's great. And you decided um, you had your first child when? So we were
1: very fortunate in that I went to a program that had the resources to allow for a research year and that my husband and I were at a period in our relationship where we were ready to have a child at that time and we were able to time it so that I did have my baby during my research year. Um, my first child Um, and then my second child again we were able to time it so that uh, he was born pretty much immediately after I graduated from residency and I didn't start my hand fellowship for a month so I sort of had a built-in maternity leave in that situation as well and we were also very fortunate that I didn't um, have any obstetrical complications Uh, I wasn't put on bed rest I know that 10 percent of the women who did respond to our survey were put on bed rest and if I had been put on bed rest or had any complications that certainly would have created a problem because there was no contingency plan for if I was not going to be able to you know work up until my due date
0: right I've actually found that same thing I think it sounds like we both were lucky Um, you know in in our pregnancies and not having to take extra time because for me it worked the same you know i i planned it out where you know my chief year i was going to give birth and you know the whole time i'm thinking to myself i'm starting fellowship literally the day i finish general surgery training i can't afford to be pushing back anything for for complications and so you know it puts a really big pressure on you as a mom um you know, carrying a, carrying a fetus, which you know can have complications to any part of that, either it be pre prepartum or postpartum. And, and so I think that, that really puts a, that put a huge pressure on me. And I'm very lucky, obviously, that I didn't have to have any, I didn't have any complications that weren't able to be managed within the time that I had. Um, but if you do, I think it's a tough one because we don't really have a system in place that supports you for that.
1: I absolutely think that one of the most important things that's come out of my own experience and this paper is that residency programs and fellowship programs need to have a plan for when residents become pregnant. And it needs to include who's going to take call, and it shouldn't be the other residents. That burden should not fall on them. It should include a reasonable maternity leave and paternity leave for men, and it should not be the responsibility of the pregnant resident to figure out how much time they can take off and still sit for the boards or who's going to cover me if I have a complication. That should be determined by a policy that's set by the program and should not fall on the pregnant resident who's already under a lot of stress. I also would say to um, residents and medical students who are at a point in their relationship where they are considering having children, that they should not wait. But if they are at a point in their relationship where they want to start a family, that they should do that and that they will figure it out because there really is no good time. If they're able to do it during the research year, of course that's ideal. But fertility is going to decrease significantly during the years of their residency training and it really doesn't get that much better as an attending.
2: Yeah, I think that's Mm an interesting point because I don't know what it's like to be an attending yet. And I imagine that first initial time period is actually pretty stressful. Like collecting for your boards, getting sort of situated in your new situation, trying to build a practice. Um, Dr. Bourne, do you want to talk a little bit about... Like, yeah, I think we all think um, that light at the end of the tunnel is when I become an attending. But I, I actually, in our private discussions, I've realized that that's actually not... It's not the end, man. It's not.
1: <laughs> yeah, I would say there's certainly great things about being attending, you know, really taking care of your patients and taking ownership for your patients. Uh, but certainly it's very stressful. You're doing all these procedures for the first time as an attending. Some of these procedures you're doing for the first time period. <laughs> and. The, you, know, you really take ownership of your patients as an attending and uh, you're responsible for everything and you are in board collection and that's certainly very stressful. Um, so you may or may not get, uh, you probably will get a better maternity leave as an attending and it'll probably be paid. Sorry, guys. Um, I think housekeeping just came to our door. I had to
2: edit that. This is real life, man. This is <laughs> this is real life in action. <laughs>
1: um, okay, as soon as the door's closed. Um, but I would say, As an attending, you have more control over your schedule, so that is the benefit of waiting to be an attending, but I would say the stigma certainly doesn't go away, and when you're trying to build your practice and try to get board collection cases and you're under the stress of figuring out your operations for the first time where you're in charge, it certainly is not any easier.
0: Yeah, I'm absolutely thinking about that as we speak, you know, being somebody that's considering private practice um, and then currently doing some family planning of my own, you know, the thought of having an infant or being pregnant during those first six months to a year out of residency seems like an extremely just difficult option. Um, you know, obviously, you can do anything. I really believe that when you set your mind to it. But is it something that I want to do? Uh, probably not. Now, I will say, um, uh, Wendy and Deb, to kind of go back on your point here, I loved in the paper that you put this. And I think this was this resonates. And I think that this will be a solution Um, if hopefully every specialty adopts it, but where you talked about the American Board of Obstetrics and Gynecology developing a policy allowing their residents to take 20 weeks of leave, and it demonstrated no impact on their surgical experience, meaning they didn't make them stay longer, it didn't defer defer their boards. Um, I really think that other specialties need to follow this lead.
2: Yeah, for sure. I think... um... I mean, every specialty is different, but I think that really was a nice fact that kind of gives hope to what's possible um, if you really um, want it to happen. The other thing that, um, I know we didn't really plan to talk about this, but uh, locum tenens, you know, I think it would be so interesting if there was like a pool of people, like if your maternity leave was three months, four months, I mean, that is a totally decent period of time where somebody can do locums. I actually had a friend recently, before she started practice, she wanted to travel. So what she did was she did locums, she'd do it for a certain period of time, and then she'd be off traveling the world for like four weeks or or so at a time. And I was like, what job do you have that you're like around the world? She's like, oh, I just decided to do locums for a few months before I actually started a rooted practice where I knew it would be hard to leave once I got started um, and I feel like that's a potential way for people to support each other you know if uh, you had one person or a group of people that were doing locums in a certain region uh, and you had people who were kind of in and out of maternity leave.
0: Yes I think that is a great option and first of all I'm jealous of that because <laughs> sounds like she's having a, a great time. Um, But I think that absolutely, I think that's like a a surefire way to be able to help with your family planning and give yourself the time that you need, um, you know, before you kind of settle down.
1: I think that we as Americans undervalue the importance of maternity leave if you look at the health benefits, it's decreased infant mortality, you have improved mental health for the mother, you have improved child development milestones, and you have improved breastfeeding. And economically, you have better work morale, you have better work retention, less turnover, increased productivity, and we just ignore these things. And I think we really do a disservice to our families by not paying attention to the importance and the benefits of having a real maternity leave. And if you look at FMLA, you know, the federal government mandates that um, for most large hospitals would fall into the category of being under FMLA, that women should be allowed to have 12 weeks and not lose their job. And women, I don't think necessarily who are residents know what their rights are, they can take up to 12 weeks, but then they know that they'll be punished in the sense that they won't be able to sit for their boards or graduate on time, and that they'll have resentment from their fellow residents who are having to cover for them. But I think that 12 weeks is actually a very reasonable amount of time for a woman to take off. I mean, if she's breastfeeding and she's waking up every two hours to breastfeed her baby, should she really be... Doing surgery when she hasn't slept a reasonable amount of time, and what if a woman has postpartum depression or baby blues? Should she really be taking care of patients four weeks after she's, you know, been recovering? I don't think that's good for the baby, the mother, the family, or the patients.
2: Yeah, that's a super good point. And you know, if you have a partner uh, and that person wants to be a supportive um, partner in that immediate. Postpartum period for you or for the baby, like it kind of is sad that you know the average partner leave is just one week. Yeah. I mean, like, how are you supposed to share the burden of like not sleeping? You know, I mean, it you can't just not sleep for like four weeks, six weeks. You know, it, you need help. You need, um, and if you don't have like people in your family coming for you, and it's just you and your partner, which is possible. Um, it sucks for that person that they can't help you in a way that they would like to, you know?
0: Yeah, and I think the majority of residents probably live far distances from their immediate family just because of the you know nature of our careers and the match process. It's difficult to sort of settle where necessarily your family is. I'd actually be interested to know the numbers on that, but certainly there's probably more residents than not raising their children without grandparents nearby. And certainly, you know, parent parental leave, paternal leave, is a huge one. I mean, I know uh, personally, I've had some some co-residents that have had really big trouble with this and have asked for more time. You know, their poor wives are at home, or and and they want help and and they just can't provide it, and they want to be there for their kids. I mean, I think it's maybe even a little bit of a different in our generation than it was generations ago. Um, you know, men are really trying to to take some of the share of the load, and that's admirable and it's fabulous. But if we don't allow them that opportunity, um, and we're being just as difficult on them as we are us, then you know nobody's making strides forward. So, you know, I think it's it's definitely something that we need to need to look at more, and and the board really needs to come down and kind of. Uh, come up with a policy that allows us to have more time without any of the consequence.
2: Yeah, I think that part of that is just kind of um, as we evolve as a civilization, um, how we view gender roles and responsibilities um, in general. Um, Exactly what you said, like, I think trapping the partner, which is, let's say, traditionally male in a situation where they can't help their um, partner who has given birth, it just perpetuates that, what you know, what society has decided to be male or or as that partner role, you know.
1: And I think it is important to realize that competency based training is really better than time based training. And what's important for you to finish residency and graduate and to sit for your boards is that you're competent to take care of patients independently. And it shouldn't be as tied to did you take an extra two weeks off to take care of your baby? It should be tied to are you a competent surgeon at graduation?
2: Yeah, I will say that, um, you know, where Dr. Bourne and I trained, um, right now I'm in my last year, and the schedule has been arranged um, so that if this last year, sixth clinical year, is no longer deemed necessary due to the competency-based model, that it um, doesn't have a lot of the core um, super intense rotations anymore, and I'm having a great time um, learning about things that um, I wanted to learn about, such as going away on an elective, um, or just having time to really hone in and study some topics that I hadn't uh, gone as in depth as I wanted to in the past, but this would have been a perfect time. So in that sense, I can totally see how competency-based training is a perfect way to accommodate um, family planning.
0: Absolutely. There's no doubt in my mind that we're going to move to competency-based training, hopefully in the near future, um, and that will 100% have an impact on the way we're able to family plan and, and support our females and males in training. You know, um, another subject I found pretty interesting and it's really a hot topic. And I personally have some serious problems with, with it. Um, but breastfeeding, um, and, and I found it actually very surprising that your numbers of 39%, um, Uh, were found in your study about uh, um, moms that were able to breastfeed. I actually thought it would be a lot less than that. Um, So I'm actually kind of happy that about 40% of women are able to at least breastfeed for six months. Um, That being said, um, you know, with women feeling more and more compelled to breastfeed and sometimes guilty not to, I think it puts a lot of pressure on us within surgical training to, at least for me, I can tell you, the idea of breastfeeding and coming back to work was really, really hard. Um, And I had some great attendings, but it's still a little awkward you know, to say, I have to leave the operating room or leave rounds to go pump. You know, you just feel a little weird. Of course, you're trying to work really hard and prove that you can do it all. Um, So it sort of puts you in a funky position. Um, But, you know, I just wanted to get your opinion about that. What did you experience, especially Dr. Bourne breastfeeding and uh, especially with your second?
1: Yeah, my first, I was in the lab, so I could time, you know, every three hours I could go pump because I had control over my schedule. But with my second, I was in hand fellowship, and it was literally the most stressful part of my fellowship because I had no female attendings, I had only male attendings, and I felt like I needed to prove that I was a good surgeon and that I was committed to surgery and that I could never be late to the operating room. And I had to find time to pump between cases when the turnover is really quite short for hand cases. And often there was no lactation facility close to the operating room. So I was pumping in people's offices or in the call room or in the locker room, which really is not ideal. And now looking back on it and sort of even looking at what the laws are, so the Fair Labor Standards Act of 2009 requires employers to provide a reasonable break for an employee to express milk for her nursing child for one year after the child's birth, each time that she needs to express milk. And it requires employers to provide a place other than a bathroom that's shielded from view and free from intrusion of coworkers and the public that the employee can use to express milk. I mean, I have the law on my side if I want to say, you know, I'm feeling engorged. I really need to pump right now. I'm going to scrub out. I'll be back in 20 minutes. Like I, I have the right to say that but I don't feel comfortable saying that. And so I'm leaking in my bra, um, you know, potentially gonna develop mastitis, I'm decreasing my milk supply, So I don't know if I'm gonna have enough milk for my baby. I mean, it's extremely stressful. I pumped every time I drove anywhere, I was pumping while I drove because that was the most efficient use of my time. And um, yeah, it was, it was hard.
0: I share your sentiments exactly because it's exactly what I went through. Like I did have supportive attendings and 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 who probably would have been fine had I scrubbed out, but you feel that sense, you feel compelled to be there. It is a little bit awkward. You are leaking in your bra. And for me, the worry was, I'm not gonna be able to feed my child. Uh, you know, you have the breastfeeding women coming at you saying you need to breastfeed for 12 months. So that guilt is real and it's there. Um, you know, so you're just, the big F formula is on my mind, you know, when, if I switched to formula, am I going to be doing my baby harm? And, and, and no, you're not. Um, but those are all things you think about, especially as a new, especially as a first time mom, that's, I mean, those are the realities and you're doing it while under the stress of working with basically an all male group. Um, so, you know, I didn't have the luxury. We had one pump room. It was disgusting. Um, in fact, the first time I ever sat in there, I called maintenance and demanded that they come before I even did anything. I didn't even care how long I waited. But I said, this is not this is not a condition. I want to, you know, sit here for 20 minutes. I mean, it was that disgusting and deplorable and it got better. And I think it is getting better. I do think that the world and that our country is actually seeing the light here. Um, But I think it's really tough. And I think the support for us is really the biggest thing here. Um, And I think we need to get it really from our attendings that it's okay.
2: So have the two of you ever had um, conversations with men, either your male colleague residents or attendings? Do they understand like, what are the ins and outs of like, like you said, like why it's important to have a clean place, why it's important to pump when you need to pump. Do they get it?
1: I don't think anyone can get it unless they've been through it. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't get it until I had a baby at all. Right, right.
0: (laughs) I agree. I had no idea. Um, It's such a different world. Um, I will say for the next baby, I will be trying the the tube-free, hands-free, 450 500 dollar pump uh that you can apparently pump while we're operating <laughs> i actually I, I had this say, discussion I did, yeah. I did
1: try that one um, did you the the it wasn't the wasn't the willow it was the free me which i think is like a similar <laughs> um it goes in your bra as opposed to being this giant thing that like sticks out of the bra um, yeah. and it didn't work that well for me. I think it really depends oh. on your breast shape. So Oh, interesting. <laughs> for you. Yeah, I've heard.
0: Yeah, I've heard it. I figured I'd try it and, and, you know, pump during my next hand case and see how it went. Yeah.
1: But you yeah. know, so if you bend over, the milk can spill out the top. So oh, shit.
2: <laughs> <laughs> But you know, maybe part of it is like just talking about it. Like, like, whatever, man, these people are, they're all doctors. Like maybe they should, I mean, no, they should hear about it. Like if they have female partners or they have mothers in their lives, they should understand. And maybe if they did, and we just talked about it a little bit more freely, they would be more compassionate and motivated to just, I mean, like, I don't know what it's like to breastfeed, but if either one of you were in my OR and you're like, look, man, I got to go take like a 20 minute break. <laughs> I mean, if you just say the word diarrhea, everybody would just be like, yeah, go right ahead. (laughs) But somehow when you replace the word with pumping breast milk, like it's different. Like, I don't get it. Uh, Wendy, that's
1: a great sorry. point. And I yep. think I was just too embarrassed. And <laughs> now I wish I hadn't been because I think if I had been like, you know, I might be late to this next case because I'm pumping between cases. I think the attendings would have been like, oh, okay, that's fine. But I, it's embarrassing. It, it embarrasses them. It embarrasses me. Um, but it shouldn't. We should be able to just talk about it freely. And I think that would make a huge difference.
0: Right. And really, at the end of the day, they're going to forget about it five minutes, even if they were frustrated by you being five minutes late. And, you know, they're going to have no bearing on your future anyways. So it really we really should. I think this is on us, too, for sure.
1: But the guilt thing is so real because you're already feeling guilty because you're not at home taking care of your child. You're at work. So you're like, well, at least I need to feed my child if I'm going to be a good mother. And then if you're worried about your supply going down because you're not pumping often enough and then you're not even feeding your child then you really feel guilty as a mother so the guilt thing is real. Oh, yeah.
0: That's the, that was the hardest part, I think, really the guilt. The guilt was really tough. Absolutely. So, you know, um, you know, I want to just kind of summarize this with you guys and ask you if there's anything else that you feel from your from your research, from your paper, from your experience, Um, Before we kind of get into your solutions here, that you want to talk about and address,
2: I think um, probably the most important thing is just talking about it Um, and also not letting your pre existing conceptions about gender uh, roles get you stuck in a box. Because I think the more we talk about this, the more it'll become easier to talk about it and you're legitimized to talk about it. You deserve to talk about it. It's your life. It's your reproductive years. And also it's not, this is not a women's issue. This is like a family's issue. You know, it's not just about the women because, these women aren't having babies by themselves, you know, (laughs) like, and, um, and, uh, and as we approach 50, 50 men and women in surgical residency, this is an unavoidable thing. You know, if somebody had to go get an X lap because they ate something bad and had a weird strain of, you know, like bacterial diarrhea, you wouldn't say anything about them taking three months off. You'd just be like, go do, you got to take care of your body. But somehow it's different when you like, you know, deliver a giant, human out of like your vagina, somehow that's like something we can't talk about. I mean, come on, you know, so.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Terrifying experience.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's talk about the solutions because I think that's, or potential solutions, because I think that's really the, you know, the crux of
2: everything. Yeah. Mm
0: -hmm. Absolutely. I think you're the, you know, something we haven't talked about is where you talk a little bit about paid parental leave. Um, And I think this comes into play in many sense, uh, paid for the reasons of you need to be able to pay a nanny and childcare later on, and certainly you don't have enough money as a resident to be able to support all of those things well. Uh, And and right now we're using our vacation time, and so that kind of stinks. So what are your thoughts on that?
2: Well, I think it seems like in the end, no matter how supportive you're local department is, it comes down to the board. And that's where people get stuck, you know.
1: Yeah, right.
0: Yeah, I think they need to. they certainly I think at the top of it all, they're the ones that are going to need to come down with a policy and and then everybody will follow it. They'll have to, you know, I know Cleveland Clinic just came out uh, with paid parental 12 weeks, paid parental leave uh, for all employees, which I think is amazing. Uh, because truly, truly, we shouldn't have to use FMLA. We shouldn't have to, you know save our vacation time. It should just be something that's there. And obviously, you know somebody had asked me, does this apply to residents? And I mean it would have to. They're an employee. Now how that goes down with your board, again, at the end of the day comes down to the board uh, will be something that, you know, they'll have to discuss. Uh, sure, you can take your 12 weeks, but will you be able to sit for your boards? That's the question at least you're getting paid for sex. Yeah.
2: The other question, I don't know if you guys have really thought about it and have any ideas since we published this paper, but um, I think Deb and I came from a pretty big program and we've had... um, Residents with health issues, where like everybody can just pitch in, take one of their calls, and then pretty soon, like that person's whole call burden had been taken care of within a few emails, because we had so many residents and residents that were willing to help, just take calls, you know. And mm-hmm. so, what is it like from a smaller program? How would they navigate that? Um, you know, any health issue, not not just pregnancy and postpartum.
1: There really right. needs to be a policy. They need yeah. to have a plan, and it really should include PAs or locums or people who are in the lab. It should not fall on the other residents.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, I actually had a small program. We're two a year, uh, total three year fellowship. And um, I'll, I'll just go ahead and give you my spoiler alert, but I'm 13 weeks pregnant. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> so, anou- announcing it here first. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, you know, this is a real, obviously, immediate topic for me. And my co-fellow is amazing, and she's, you know, obviously super supportive. My program's actually very supportive. They love us having babies. They've even said it outwardly. They, you know, when we first got there, they said, well, we love babies, so don't be afraid. Aww. So that's a great thing to hear. Yeah. Um, you know, so, but, yeah, the real question is, well, who's going to take my call? You know, we're not taking much call our third, uh, again, I plan this in my chief year, Um are going into my chief area. We don't take much call, actually, luckily. But, um, you know, if there was an issue, the residents would have to really pick it up. And that's really the fact because we don't have anything in place where PA or ARMP could step in and help with call. Um, nor do I think the attendings would electively want to say, okay, I'll volunteer. Um, so and and I would obviously feel ashamed if that were to happen, you'd feel guilty about it. So you just rush back from your maternity leave and, and try to do the best you can. There should be something though in place. Um as far as uncovered cases, I think most of them are um really set up. They they all have assistance uh in case we're not there anyways, because we are such a small program. They know we're stretched thin already. So we're lucky if we didn't if we if we couldn't cover a case. It's not it's only a detriment to us, right? That's one less case we get, but that's not uh, a big deal for them. It's basically call coverage, um, which really does just spread to your colleagues, and and that stinks. And you just hope you have some understanding colleagues. And luckily, I do. Um, you know, and you just kind of try to say, "Hey, I'll buy you a couple beers and make it up to you at some point." What do you <laughs> think what, about um,
2: the money to cover the cost? Of a locums or a PA or whatever coming from the overall um, hospital system in general, because I think you know these things come down to money, right? It's like the boards and then money, um, and so where would the uh, resources come from to cover uh, a locums or a PA? You
0: know, Dr. Bourne, you might have more information now that you're an attending on that. Where who would who would supply that? <laughs> It would come from the department, most likely. Yeah, and do you think that's something that the department would consider?
1: I think it needs to be a priority.
0: Yeah. But I'm saying, like, um, would it be
2: possible for the overall hospital? Because you're employed by the department, yes, but you're, you're an employee of the hospital system. I don't know.
0: <laughs> right. right, should there be kind of a stand-in maternity leave group of people? that are there to kind of fill in gaps.
2: Is that sort of what you're saying? Well, I'm saying like, um, yes, I guess it falls on the department, but also the department is part of the hospital. So let's say you work for a really big hospital system that makes a lot of money, or maybe the CEO makes millions of dollars. You know, like, (laughs) should, um, should that cost burden not fall on the department, but rather on the hospital system? if the hospital has stated that they're dedicated to following federal law and allowing, you know, people to have this much maternity leave or whatever.
1: That would be nice, but that's definitely a decision that's above my current page. Yep.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Way above ours. But, but it's definitely something to, to challenge and fight for, I think, yeah. for sure. I mean, I, I I agree with you. I mean, they want to be above board in everything that they do, and certainly any, res, any, any hospital that trains residents is – supposed to have residency support so
2: you know so i recently interviewed with kaiser permanente and they have something called like emergency child care sort of like if your child suddenly gets sick like and you don't have your usual nannies and stuff in in play like um they have this sort of mechanism so um what have you guys seen in terms of um looking for jobs and like on-site child care and, um, backup mechanisms for people who are parents?
0: We have nothing. Okay. Um, the backup mechanism for us falls on us. Yeah. Um, and this is, I think this was for me, the biggest standout of your potential solutions because the providing affordable on-site child care the teaching hospitals with 24 hour coverage, that is everything. And I think that solves so much. Uh, in our in our specialty, for me, I have a nanny that I pay full time, and we do part time daycare to offset the um, over hours costs because uh, we do everything you know legit on the books, and you know it's a lot of money to go overtime. So we do both, and it is my entire salary.
2: Yeah, I
0: will say that, and it's really really difficult. And if God forbid the nanny is you know sick or and my husband's out of town. Or I'm working in the OR late and my husband's out of town, which frequently happens, you know, and the nanny, you know, can't get there for whatever reason. I mean, we're in trouble and there is no real contingency plan. It's just like a, oh my gosh, like I've got to either leave the operating room and, you know, put my attending on the spot and myself on the spot. Um, There's just, you know, nobody else really I can call. There's no other help. So that is a huge, that would be a huge help to have that in place, a 24-hour place where I know I could, you know, put my kid for the day if my husband's out of town and the nanny's sick or something like that, you know? Yeah.
1: I would just echo that that is really, really necessary. And looking at our data, 40% of female physicians who are married are married to another physician. And so both physicians are taking call, working long hours, and having affordable on-site child care that's good quality child care that's available when your kid is sick so daycare is not calling you and saying your kid is sick you need to come pick them up and you're like I'm operating <laughs> um, and that you know is available when you're on call and need to go in in the middle of the night is just so so important and really does need to be there
2: yeah I think um, burnout is obviously a huge problem especially amongst surgeons and I think that there was a statistic that like physicians commit more suicide or as much suicide as people who come back from a war. I, I need, may need to be fact checked on that, but um, I think helping people create a more family friendly culture is huge on burnout prevention. Uh, and less people burning out means less turnover, means less money recruiting people all over again, and that's really important. Um, I think it's very sad and ironic that physicians who have dedicated their lives to take care of other humans themselves don't get to be treated with some of the benefits that you know somebody at Google gets. <laughs> so I think it's really important maybe in our new generation with more emphasis uh, on wellness, uh, with everybody on the consensus that wellness is important that we can kind of help ourselves and recognize that we deserve certain things, rights, as Dr. Bourne said. Um, we have rights. Like, I don't think you could make normal workers work the way we do with the pay or the benefits that we get um, and not get people kind of protesting a little bit, you know. A
0: hundred percent. That's it. You you really discussed the, the all the important factors. I mean, really, we just have to keep fighting this good fight um, and taking care of ourselves, and and learn from our you know predecessors that this is you know so important, and we have to take care of ourselves, and we have to take care of our families, and show our hospitals that if they let us do those things, we're going to be incredibly dedicated and honorable employees and I agree with you the turnover rates will be less you know if you if you pay us for maternity leave I mean that only will help I mean there's just uh, the the support has got to be increased for us all around so you know with that um, do you guys have any other points that you'd like to discuss I think we hit the
1: highlights and the take home message is that we need to support families
2: more. Yeah. And to spread the word, to make people, to make people
0: buy into this. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Spread the word. Talk about it with your friends. Post the podcast, post the paper, you know, keep doing research um, and, and at the end of the day, when you want to start your family planning, like we've all kind of said here today, just do it. There's not really a great time. Um, of course, you can you can plan for better times, um, but at the end of the day, um, you know we can't control for things that we don't know. And uh, and you know all the best to anybody listening to this podcast that's thinking about starting a family or cryopreserving, um, whatever your road is. I uh, hope you have the least amount of challenges as possible. And I want to thank everybody for downloading and listening. Please continue to follow the Stiletto Surgeon on iTunes and Stitcher for more important and fun discussions. I really want to thank you, Deborah and Wendy, for being here today. This has been an amazing discussion, and I truly learned a lot from it. Um, and I hope that uh, you know maybe things will change with baby number two, <laughs> um, and uh, you can. Uh, email me um, sp at porousplasticsurgery dot com if you guys have any questions or comments uh, from this podcast. Until next time, have a great week and thank you. Thanks. Bye. Thanks. Bye, Thanks girls, Bye.